Welcome to Arrested DevOps Episode 13, Software Deployment. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton. I'm at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that believes DevOps makes their clients more awesome. You can check out their 360-degree cloud services at 10thmagnitude.com. And make sure you do, because that's a brand new website as of today, and I think Trevor actually worked on it. So, As of Saturday, or actually oh. I guess Friday, Friday night at 8.57, or somewhere close to there. But joining us today for this episode is PagerDuty's very own Ranjeev Day. We're going to talk about getting software delivered, because it doesn't count unless it's in production. This episode is also sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle to decrease resolution time. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. To sign up for a free 30-day trial, visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash PagerDuty. This episode is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring service that pinpoints performance issues caused by your commits, builds, and configuration runs. Datadog is available for a 14-day trial and will graph, alert, and correlate events and metrics from over 70 common tools such as Docker, Chef, Jenkins, and Git. For more information, check out ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog. So let's get right into it. Uh, Ranjeeb, you want to introduce yourself? Tell our listeners a bit about you? Hey, uh, my name is Ranjeeb. I work as a system administrator at PagerDuty. Before joining PagerDuty, I have worked on lots of life science algorithm-related works. I have worked with companies like ThoughtWorks and Google and worked specifically on the area of system administration, cloud, and big libraries. Awesome. So first of all, thanks for joining us. And we want to talk about, about how do we get software out? How do we ship software? How do we release all these changes and ideas to get them out in front of our users to get back the feedback that we want to get? So to get started, what actually does software delivery mean to you when I say those words? So for us, or for me, software delivery means gathering a particular requirement from end user, from some feedback process, and once you have developed, and whatever involves once a feature is developed, till it hit the customer's use cases, or the customers are using, and giving feedback on that. So that particular step, to me, is, is software delivery. Cool. So now th- there's a lot of different philosophies <laughs> as, as this goes, and, and one of the questions is, what, what do you think is the best way when we talk about delivering software, or at least the way that the method that you found the most success with? Yeah, so I think uh, though there are specific use cases, there are specific strategies and organization-specific uh, customization, in general, we, we kind of tend to agree that we want software to be delivered in a stable, in a well-tested manner, and we also want the change that we are introducing to be as minimum as possible. So there are three consistent things on this, uh, that uh, you want incremental changes, and you want regular or periodic changes, and you want the whole step to be an automated or, or semi-automatic manner in a reliable fashion. So how do we go about doing that? So, we're t- you know, we're talking about small, you know, I'm assuming small commits uh, and making sure those commits, so in the strategies that you're familiar with, are you c- uh, executing on continuous de- delivery? Yeah. Or, okay, yeah. cool, excellent. Hey, what's what's continuous delivery? So I think continuous delivery is the ability or the attitude towards uh, uh, delivering your software in a well-tested and incremental fashion. In most cases, it generally tends to be an, uh, an uh, you know extension of your CI environment, where you have the CI 
and it doesn't matter how how you develop the code sometimes you provide use it feature branches sometimes you have kind of a stable and different environment specific branches but the crucial part is when you merge them before the merging it goes via and pr uh, uh, or a review process and a testing process in cases it can be automatic in cases it can be manual or it can be semi automatic doesn't matter how like if you are following things like xp you push the uh, code review right up front during the development directly right while uh, in in other say mostly free and open source software on top of github that we develop we go to a later post you know commit review process in terms of pr so nonetheless the the thing is that once you have write those features those has to be smaller and independently tested so every feature that you have uh, has a independent test so now you take this whole approach and take it to another level you say that now i should i want the ability to introduce only this small change to my production and i want to do it in a very very safe manner and probably i want to do it in a lot more sophisticated way you may decide to release a particular feature only to a subset uh, of your user so you may also you want it like say for example based on geography based on age group or some some other parameters or maybe some expected uh, some interested customers who are only uh, want to see those features but not the rest so those kind of ability you add on and that very process is continuous delivery in due process you also learn the risk taking abilities the entire organization also go to some kind of cultural changes because it, it was not common in the beginning so along those lines of the continuous delivery so the like the, the steps you kind of outlined there are not necessarily steps but some of the pieces are small commits lots of testing and getting it right out in front of your users and getting their feedback and uh, being able to respond on the fly to what their wants and desires are so let's go through each of those steps i think most people kind of understand the concept of a small commit but what is a small commit to you to me uh, a small commit is is anything anything that is a change that has been automated and that's i we need to persist and that that is something the user you know expect it can be a unique feature if you cannot think of a feature and we cannot associate that with with our commits then it's it's not probably a, a full commit it's not it's not a full work you want it to be independently verifiable it kind of goes back to the theory of you know uh, stories agile development right uh, and you can have like smaller stories or you can have large stories which later we call them epic and then again we break them so to me it's a logical extension of that but you are not only talking talking about development your commit can also represent your infrastructure changes so if today you are doing say canary deployment but you want to go from that to say some kind of dart launching and that particular logic is impl- implemented in some form of code that is a feature right even if sometimes it's it's not an user centric but for your internal programs or your infrastructure that is a feature and you practice it in the same way as you uh, develop any other software it also means that particular feature has to be tested and and it has an its own independent tests and every time we break the feature or anything else breaks that feature it is expected that that particular test will be broken so you'd like to use that test to drive the requirement or to ensure that by further changes those particular features are not broken which we call also sometime regression if it is known error and you have added those particular uh, a test we call them regression you don't want the, the regressions to come up as well so uh, features are like this and a commit is basically embodies a, a feature uh, you can also have breakdown you know one feature into multiple commits for your sake but when it mm-hmm. goes for the merging generally pr or a feature branch uh, means one particular feature cool that's what i like to hear actually <laughs> that fits very well with with how i like to do things 
again, you know, so the, you're bringing it into the next step, too, where we're talking about testing. So to you, what kind of tests should we have on our software before we're putting it into production? So I, I always think that more test is better. But, but it is not, it is also not very rational, specifically if you're starting from Greenfield. It is also uh, important to understand that writing tests is easier in the earlier stage than later. Because test kind of modern test or unit test kind of, or even functional test is in Cucumber, they reads like documentation. So you can actually uh, replace documentation, uh, you can get rid of documentation, you can have version working documentation, but in form of tests. So more tests is better, but you, you don't generally get time. So depending upon your business and your exact requirement, you, you design the tests. Say if you're starting from Greenfield projects, I will definitely say that uh, functional testings are the best ones. Because uh, there your focus is only that whether a particular feature is working as it is expected or not. You don't really look at the code, how it is implemented. You don't really uh, use those tests to drive the design of the code. You are using mostly that my functionality is intact because that's your topmost priority. Uh, once you have those things, then you kind of realize that in due process, you, you might have some tech depth, you might have some design issues, uh, and you can also have unit tests. You don't have to go through this learning process if you have already done it. So if you have already executed projects which has unit testing as well as uh, functional testing, probably you will already start upfront unit testing in your greenfield projects, and which is just perfectly legitimate and which is really, really good. The benefit of this thing is that now, uh, if you hire someone or if a new person joins, right, I'm assuming your business will grow and, and new people will come. Uh, they don't have to really familiarize themselves with the entire code base. They can look at this code and they can change just by, you know, looking at the test. Or, uh, in, in worst case, you can forget how the code works and you can just make the entire code works and you can just make the changes uh, that is required. And you see the test failing. And you do bare minimal work to fix those tests. That pretty much drives the design. Uh, but as a result, now, uh, when I when I write some stuff, I am pretty sure that even if I don't understand the code fully, uh, I have not broken existing stuff. So these are some. And then uh, lastly, you can have an integration test. Uh, integration tests are kind of, you can, not a functional test. That means they are uh, black box. You don't know how the code is. You are not aware of it. But they also incorporate all the external services. Think of that if you are uh, writing an uh, MVP, uh, say, model view control MVC framework like Rails and individual application logic can be tested using uh, unit tests like RSpec or test unit. Any user is clicking and part particular functionality is getting uh, delivered, that can be tested with uh, Kikumba. But will that feature work if my backend is down? Suppose I have uh, set up one load balancer and five, five background unicorn and two database, you know, uh, for resiliency. And I want to test that fact, whether that works or not. Uh, the one way to do is that create a simulated environment and take off one of the uh, unicorn. But how you test that? So to do that kind of testing, you only not only need a full environment and system automation, plus also the ability to automatically deploy it, and then inject those failure, and then gather the feedback in forms of test and test harnessing. That is integration testing. But this may not be uh, you know absolutely necessary in the beginning. As you grow and as you hit this obstacle, you introduce these things. Yeah, so in it's simplest form. It's more about you know getting the value that you want, and in its uh, most sophisticated form, you actually use the test to design or derive the simplistic uh, solution. So what what we're we're saying is that one of the things is we can automate our deployments and we do them a lot more quickly if we've got good faith in the product based upon our testing. Correct. 
Yes. Would that be Absolutely. it? Yeah. And uh, the random thing, like when you talk about that that integration testing, and it's it's funny because I've I've heard different people use that phrase different ways, which can be at either end of the cycle where either they're talking about, oh, this is when we want to test integrating our code, but I like it more the way that you said it, which is more of systems integration. Uh, and that's kind of a, I, I think it's in the continuous delivery book that the term is used as non-functional tests, which is kind of a rough word because <laughs> it's yeah. like we're testing to make sure things don't work, but that's not really, it's just the things that are outside of our normal functional tests. Like you said, like either testing for high availability or when you're doing things like performance testing, stuff that you're not necessarily wanting to do every single commit, you know, but, but when things make it to a certain level in the pipeline. We also, if you listeners want to go back, our second ever episode was all about testing. And so you can check that out at arresteddevops.com slash two for episode two, where we talked in depth about testing. And that might be interesting. One thing I want to think about that came to mind when you talked about starting with functional tests, and that's a, it's kind of interesting to me because I, I think the same way. And when I'm, when I'm writing, when I'm quote unquote writing code, I guess I shouldn't put that in air quotes, but I'm usually writing like a cookbook, you know, so I'm doing this with chef and it's still code. To, it is still code. It's code. I shouldn't, I shouldn't minimize it that way. Don't knock uh, it that you've tried it. That's correct. So, but. <laughs> If I, if I think about it, I, I tend to, while the functional tests may not be the first thing that gets tested in my pipeline, where I might have mm-hmm. like unit level stuff sooner, I tend to write those tests, the functional tests first, because they're the ones I know first. So yeah. is that, is that a way to kind of summarize what you were just, I mean, not summarize, but yeah, am I understanding exactly. your point correctly? Yeah. Actually, the, the interpretation of these terms vary specifically for uh, integration testing and functional testing. It varies a lot. Even in the unit testing frameworks, uh, people are, which is fine uh, and debatable, but we know kind of the generic, generic use cases. Like uh, you, though you may not write the functional test first, first, and uh, though you may write the functional test first, you may not run them first. Uh, yeah. We know for a fact that we'll always prefer to uh, run the unit test first if they are available. Uh, reason being they are the fastest one, right? So in your developer wo- workstation, if you have a really large code base, it is expected or the goal of unit test is also to execute fast. You know, it does not execute anything except your code. So say example, for example, if you have a database call, you may want to mock that call uh, because you don't want to test the database, but database, uh, databases. Uh, or for example, if you're writing on top of chef and you have some searches, uh, you can stub it out because you don't want to uh, test chef server search process. But that is debatable. A lot of people have said uh, it may be good, it may be bad. But nonetheless, you get the benefit of executing your code fast and to govern the design. And, and integration testing also same. Uh, it comes later. Uh, as you said, a lot of people like in the continuous delivery book, Jace talked about uh, non-functional testing. Mm. If, for, for us, it is, it is different because we, we are kind of internally SOA architecture and we have all these services come together, give a much, you know, broader or much usable interconnected pieces of software which do you feel like a platform, which is kind of pager That is also an integration testing. Uh, I also work a, a lot on package management uh, operating systems. Earlier, I used to work for uh, work a lot on Fedora packaging. There, if you think of a standard uh, packaging, say you are packaging libcurl, and you have the code for libcurl, which is written in C, or maybe it has a lot of binding in, in Ruby, Python. Testing those code will be unit testing. While if you build a package and you use those packages to make a curl call, 
that can be called as functional testing because that time you are not really bothered about how curl is implemented. On the other hand, integration testing will be say Bodhi or Koji like system where all the package is getting integrated and, and you are saying Ubuntu as a software is working with or Fedora as a software is working with a particular version of Ripcurl, particular version of kernel, particular version of glibc, etc. Because at the end of the day, your user is not really want to only use libcurl. They want to use it in conjunction with this whole platform. So depending upon your concern, you might have different interpretation. But overall, you want to add this, uh, you want to address the same uh, values or same benefits. So once we've got our tests in place, so we've kind of we've got our our unit tests to test our code, our functional tests to test our larger scope, and our you know our business driven tests or cucumber tests to test full functional actual implementations. How and when do we run those tests? So you, you mentioned, you know, as we're developing software, we're going to be running our unit tests very quickly and repeatedly because it's the fastest thing that runs. But where in our pipeline of continuous deployment delivery do we put and run our yeah. tests? As you have just mentioned, you, you start as, as your organization goes, you write tests and, and then, then tests are broken down into multiple stages. And uh, slowly you, you hit a, a state where state becomes bottleneck, test becomes a bottleneck, okay. Uh, not only uh, the time taken and the complexity involved, but also the infrastructure that needs to run the test. So generally during that time you introduce something like a CI uh, or continuous integration server, which is basically an automated uh, service which runs the test for you and gives you the feedback, generally in forms of red, green, blue, whether you have all the tests passed, failed, or, you know, they're just broken due to some error condition. And uh, you consume this uh, uh, information as a radiator because uh, you want other people to uh, look at that. And if a build is broken, probably you don't want to merge something on top of it. That's the reason. So a follow-up or, or, a, or a logical step soon after you have the test is that to have CI. And again, if you have not done it, you realize it as you learn and you implement it. But if you have done it beforehand, then you can go full, you know, frontal and you can have a CI server uh, uh, straight away. And it is also pretty easy uh, now that you have a lot of hosted uh, uh, CI services, uh, but no, no, none of them solves all of the problems. So depending upon your need and requirement, you can choose any of the CI servers and you can automate whatever whatever takes a lot of time from your end to uh, the CI service. So first you want to automate and offload to CI service and establish a uh, workflow uh, that the team is comfortable with it around it. And then you introduce the CI server as a feedback mechanism for your deployment pipelines. I have a question that's specific around PagerDuty because you guys are very service oriented, as you said. So you've got lots of products that all interse intersect with each other. So when we're talking about building a continuous delivery pipeline, and I know that when I initially started learning about CD, I kind of really thought about this very much like there was literally one pipeline and all the products were in it, blah, blah, blah. And then I've kind of seen that that's not maybe necessarily clear to do it that way. In your setup, do you kind of have separate pipelines for each product and then they come together at some point? Or is there really just like one set of uh, deployment pipeline for all of your products? Yeah, so uh, our internal uh, CI infrastructure is kind of, again, represent or, or shows our internal evolution. Till I joined, we didn't have actually a, a CI. We had a lot of tests. And, and I, I joined when we had like 14 people only. So we had tests, we had those things, but we didn't have any infrastructure to run those. So our first thing was to set up a Jenkins server, 
and do a, a feature branching and a individual pipeline for each of those. Because I have used uh, Go and other tools, CI service, I will not say those as pipeline because pipeline is a bit complicated than that. You can have things like fan in, fan out stages and all those things are pipeline. So in particular, uh, CI context, pipeline means a bit different. But I think what you mean is that per project build capabilities and feedback capabilities. And yes, we have that. Later on, we, we moved with a kind of a blended solution because we had, we were SOA and there are multiple people working in each, working on a different feature branch. You will have a lot of PR raised and that is to be a bottleneck. So you'll have a high build queue. So we offloaded that bit on, on, on Travis. Travis is doing perfect job on that. And, and it also works perfectly with uh, uh, GitHub workflows where you get the feedbacks not only in forms of, you know, your PR becomes red, green or yellow. You can also get a post back hook in your hip chat and stuff like that. So that is one thing that we are doing. And also, uh, we still have the internal Jenkins, but it does not uh, give comments or give feedback on individual PR, but it does the reverse. Once you merge, uh, we take uh, our master and we deploy it to our downstream environments. That is more like kind of we are doing integration testing with that, not really functional testing. But that is more due to the fact that Travis really is, is not foolproof in that way. You don't have pipelines. You cannot say that uh, that you have uh, 10 dependency. Each, if each of one of them breaks or one of them gets updated, you want to trigger downstream processes with certain other kind of thing. You cannot do those kind of, and those I to call them as, as pipeline or in CI services, we call them as pipeline. Gotcha. Okay. So that, that certainly helps for sure. Cause it gets to me, it seems like it's very easy to build. Well, I shouldn't say it's very easy. But when you're talking about a single application that kind of works within itself, adopting continuous delivery kind of makes a lot of sense. And then you start to look and say, but like you said, when you have these integration points come in, and that's usually when, when I've talked to customers, when the wheels start to come off, because it's not as intuitive, I think, at that point, yep. that you're, you yep. still philosophically, you have kind of a virtual pipeline. You say everything must go through this way. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a physical pipeline that everything follows yeah. the same way. Yeah. So when you talked about, you're talking about deployments, you brought up, you mentioned something in passing that I'd like to talk about a little bit more because I think it's pretty interesting. And that's the idea of canary deployments. So do you want to talk a little bit about what that means and, and how that can be useful in the real world? So I think this is useful when you want, when you are uh, doing um, smaller, again, a smaller uh, feature based uh, development. And you want to try it out to get feedback before you roll it out to uh, across a large set of uh, audience or end users. Uh, there are multiple ways to do that. So one is that one feature of this uh, or one requirement of this kind of process is that you want to expose the feature to only subset of user. Another will be that if you have a large cluster of uh, services, how you can roll it out that it, do it does not cause any uh, uh, downtimes. So to do that, there are multiple processes which actually uh, addresses both of these uh, things. Canary deployment, blue-green deployment, dark launching, all of them pretty much on the similar line, but they kind of give feedback to each other. In case of canary deployment, you have a router kind of uh, entity in, in, in front. It can be a hardware router, it can be a software router, it can be something that logically represents a router. And what you say that only some subset of, if say uh, deploy, I, I develop a feature uh, which is accessible in a particular URL, say X, Y, Z. And in my router, I'm saying that if you hit, say I'm running Nginx as a, as a router, that if you hit this X, Y, Z, then it goes to a canary server where it, uh, and, and it fetches that particular response from those set of subset of uh, server. As a result, when you're developing this, 
you have to release only on those. So any kind of code changes are now sandboxed to only those subset of backend services. Uh, but this was the earlier requirement, but we are addressing this problem by changing the router configurations and, and, and then uh, designing the whole deployment and release process around that. That is canary deployment. You can do uh, multiple other ways. Those will be on the lines of, you know, dark launching or, or blue green deployments. Gotcha. And then similarly, so this is, this is a, a, a thing I'd like your opinion on is a lot of times when we talk about this type of work, one of the first things that comes up is, oh, how do we roll back, roll back, right? Everybody gets freaked out about wanting to do rollbacks. And Mark Burgess wrote something not too long ago that in his mind was the mathematical defeat of why rollbacks are a thing. So I'm curious and not, not to say, hey, do you agree or disagree with Mark? But <laughs> what, what do you find in the real world? when it comes to, to rollbacks is how often is that relevant, the ability to roll back a change, and how often does it actually help you to be able to do that, or are you able to even ever do that appropriately? I always felt that the ability to have to do rollback is always awesome, nonetheless. But it, sometimes it is just difficult or, or sometimes it is impossible to do it. But if you have, first of all, it's really your business requirement whether you want to do it or not. And it is also driven by culture. Some people would like to, like as a, as an organization, we always tend to roll forward. And it is also uh, supported by the fact that we have heavy automation and testing in place. So even if we have a small bug, we have the confidence that we have to ship only that kind of fix instead of rolling back, which might involve a lot more things. Sometimes rollbacks are just not possible. Suppose you have uh, database migrations. But again, remember, there are ways to design your database migrations that they are, that rollback is possible. Didn't I remember when we were adopting continuous delivery for different clients and, and enabling them, that this was a very common concern for them. Like if my uh, release involved database migration, how do I roll back? So after doing some work on those things, what we have figured out that if you can split out your entire DB migration into two, two chunks or you can have your release broken down into two chunks. So in one first one, you probably stop using a column name. Say your uh, uh, database migration involved dropping a column. So in one release, you stop using the column name. In the second release, you actually do the migration. As a result, you can always go back to the rollback state. But this is like uh, 2011. And, and now uh, we know a lot more things can be done. We Now we have persistent store or the prototypes of persistent store, which is time series aware. So you can tell directly, think of you have a Cassandra or stuff like that, that go back to 30 minutes. If you can do that, then I think a lot of uh, current rollback issues will be automatically solved. Now, these are not really production-ready system, but these persistent data stores are being developed. So I think rollback will be absolutely possible. Uh, and same with with, with uh, uh, deployments uh, and, and containerized applications. If you have containerized application, you can always keep a couple of old versions, you know, on the same host, and, and you can switch over very fast. And in that case, uh, rollback is still possible. Not necessarily it is the it is the expected or it is the intended thing to do, but what I think is that even if you don't prefer rollback, if you have an outage, you might want to roll back for a small time till you get uh, it's kind of your buying in time till you push in the hotfix. But as a generic purpose or as a generic rule, I think you should always optimize for rolling forward. You should never uh, optimize for roll uh, rolling back. I like that. <clears throat> always optimize for rolling forward and not optimize for rolling back. So I just. Yeah. Did that, so I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good plan. I want to get back to CI because I think CIs are awesome. <laughs> so, how in continuous delivery do we get our builds out? Because there's, you know, 
I've seen strategies where the continuous integration server automatically deploys to production, which I get a little nervous about still. <laughs> I've seen situations where it's a button on the CI, and then there's, you know, the least interesting where you do it yourself. <laughs> so yeah. what do you think is the best way to do it, and how do you do it? I don't think there's a there's a best way. Yeah, best uh, is a, is a tough word. What's your favorite? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My favorite has been, uh, recently we have been deploying straight from our uh, HipChat. We have a bot which does it. We can talk to it. We can ask, and it can do stuff for us. It's it's working really neat for us, and and I kind of like it. Uh, it is. It reminds me of the IRC days where we used to have IRC bots that used to do deploys for us. Not only deploys to do various uh, uh, automated stuff, things like uh, meeting, taking meeting logs, doing meeting agendas. But now we are having those things with HipChat, and I, I like it. But it is important to understand that. The integration is really thin. It is the back-end automated process that is doing the deployment, right? Uh, that involves orchestration. That that involves all those complex uh, resiliency features that embodies all those tools are more important. And I think it, it is good, HipChat, but it, not necessarily this is the best one. Uh, I have seen a lot of people uh, seek for that uh, uh, button, and you have to sometimes give the button, right? So, and primarily CI is the thing that they deal with. So, at that case, I'd prefer to put it in the CI server itself. In that case, again, it, it is simple, right? You, you just basically saying that there will be a Jenkins button which will trigger my same automation script. But where you'll feel comfortable, uh, it's really a, a question for the particular organization, how much they trust, who they trust, uh, and whom they want to trigger this thing. So you use your hip chat bot for more than just posting funny yes. games into your chat room? Absolutely, yeah. Because wow. when, you, when you do that, <laughs> yeah. Because we have the uh, uh, GitHub uh, push notifications or the GitHub uh, webhooks also enabled, so you can see uh, merges being happened, you can see PRs getting uh, reviewed, and you can deploy them right there. And if something goes wrong, you can he- uh, point the person direct that I'm doing this, or or you can say that hey, I want to lock this kind of environments and I want to do all those things, because that is the primary mode of communication. And we have learned historically all the tools that you are using. You may start with all the awesome and the best tools, but as your organization will evolve. All of them will reflect your company's culture and, and, and trust at the end. You can have absolutely awesome tool acting really stubborn and non-agile. You cannot do any anything very quickly. You cannot mold them if you do not have the culture to back those things. I think that's a that's a really good point is that you have to get the people have to be comfortable with yeah. using those tools and understanding what it that it's it's okay, you know, or, or figuring out what are the, the things that freak you out, like Trevor said. You know, it came in and he said, "Oh, you can have a thing where it, you know, it point it pushes it to production." He's like, "Oh, I'm a little nervous about that." And I guess, yep. even though I'm an engineer, like I put on the psychiatrist or hat, right? And I would talk to the customer and say, "So, so why do you feel that way? <laughs> what what is it that's making you nervous?" Because chances are, we can do something about that, and not not necessarily do something about making you feel differently. But figure out why are you nervous about it? And then, oh, I'm nervous because what if something goes wrong? Well, we wouldn't do this if we didn't have this particular safeguard in place or we didn't have, you know, it has to pass all these tests before that happens. It doesn't just randomly happen, you know, and then because what you don't want to do is you don't want to steamroll over people's concerns. Right. If someone yep. has a concern, you don't want to say, well, you're wrong or, hey, catch up with the times, buddy. You're an old fuddy duddy. Right. You want to say, wait a minute, you're worried about this for a reason. And I should acknowledge that and then figure out if either, A, I missed something, maybe you have a reason that never occurred to me, or 
B, it just was natural to me to know that this was taken care of, and I just have to make sure that I communicate to you that why this is, here's some more information that maybe will make you feel better about it. Exactly. Don't assume everyone's comfortable. Yeah. I think Trevor's uh, concerns are super legit, you know. From my experience, at least in, in last 10 years in, in this kind of activity, deployment, release, development, I have seen at least 80% to 90% outage due to deployment, as simple as it is. And I, I, I can understand. And I thoroughly buy in that uh, deployments are major reason for outage. And, and, and actually, that, that is one of the reasons I, I would like to automate it first. And we probably not cannot avoid it. Even if we automate, the failure is not avoided. It is just faster. It is just uh, less manual. Earlier, you could fail in 10 ways. Uh, where So you have the ability to stop in, in, in 10 intermediate steps. But you can now you can fail with one click of button. Uh, and there is nothing you can do in between. Uh, but that also means that uh, I am now tied to person. I am tied to documents to do those things. And I am also very prone to human error, which may not be an issue when if you have a 3, 4 team, but it can be an issue if you have 30 apps developed by 300 people, 10 people in each team. That can be an issue. So to me, uh, the concern, I think I, we can reverse the concern. We can say that whatever is your concern, let's address them and let's test this whole thing in a sandbox environment. We know for sure that we cannot avoid failure. So let's not try to avoid them. Let's try to uh, come up with a scheme where we can make failure extremely cheap, extremely affordable. And we'll make, give you environments or, or places where you can develop things, fail, and, and then again reiterate over them and fix them and learn the tool or give those intelligence inside the tool and make then make the tool better and then use it for production deployment. So absolutely, you cannot have automated deployment if you don't have multiple environments where those things can be tested, those workflows, those known errors, there will be certain paths that cannot be deployed or that cannot be automated straight away or that cannot be automated from CI or from HipChat. I, and I can give, give you concrete examples of those things. Like even for uh, database migration, if you have really large-scale databases, you have different kinds of migrations, very different. The tools are different. You don't run Rails migrations. Uh, you run completely different kinds of tools. You do in-memory as a single transaction migration because you are running a high volume traffic. So those things cannot be automated with standard CI or standard, or at least they may be done from CI, but it will involve a lot of work, or we are just, the CI systems are not mature. No way compared to the other tools which you could use. And in those contexts, maybe using those tools for deployment makes more sense, more safer. Right. There's tons of different ways you can go about assembling a system, automating the assembly of a system, putting everything together. But I think... The one thing you said, and it's been said on Arrested DevOps before, and it's going to be said a hundred more times or more, is do not be afraid of failure. That is the important thing is yep. fail quickly and fail cheaply, like you said. Yep. and Fail fast. Yep. And it's going to come up again and, and again. Small. Because, yes. Let's, that's, yes. That's the thing, <laughs> right? Like, it, that's the, I think that people have to understand it's okay to stumble. It's okay to fail. We want, that's how we learn, but we want Don't to make it. the repository. Yeah, well, we would, if, there, if there's small there's small failures along the way, and that's dude, that's where the fast comes in, right, too, is mm-hmm. just chunk it up little. So we talked about some of the patterns for software deployment, you know, some of the things around continuous delivery and, and, and this automation. What are some of the anti-patterns that you see people doing that um, are kind of a, I guess you could say, a recipe for failure or a recipe well, one for of a the, bad time? Yeah, I think one of the biggest anti, uh, anti-patterns that I have seen is people becoming hardliners. They, they, they stuck with some nuance instead of meanings, you know. Historically, we have words. In, in tech, we call them buzzwords. They represent some movement, some cultural shift. 
and then you have some people who really understand because they have gone through the uh, gone through those pain and then they respect those things but then overall they they, they then they write the blogs and all those stuff and 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 lay it down how those things are used later on you see another second or third wave of people who does not have those experience that why they came but they understand what it is and they also understand this is a hip thing so and and they they stuck with the nuance like what is integration testing the point is that you want to integrate and you want to test the whole thing but there's no point it's a, it's a bike shedding discussion you know to that how i can do integration testing on. or similarly that how what should be the frequency of doing continuous delivery right should i deploy in 20 times a, a day it does not make for uh, sense for a jvm application to do 20 restarts if you so if you do not have a hot uh, deployment pipeline doing deployment that involves restart on a jvm application 20 times a day just does not make sense right so i see increasingly people get super accustomed with the nuance of those things not really the meaning so we have to stay focused on what the value and those words are given at particular time they make sense at that particular time there are perfect uh, i mean uh, it is absolutely possible that in your case you have to twist it in a very different way that is one biggest anti pattern i found the second anti pattern i i found is that accumulating tape deck this is particularly true for me uh, because i i predominantly work now on operations we always work on tech tactical stuff if we accumulate tech deck and you think that hey i'll 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 use the test later because this is not this is my mvp you know uh, i don't want to do premature optimization uh, that that's not right you know uh, working fine is not your feature i mean it's not an value thing it is a feature i should be able to monitor your application that is not a feature that is a requirement that is not a value added thing if it is running in production and you want someone who has not written the application to rightly monitor it or to to say that it is working fine or not we really need some insights and then monitoring is the insights monitoring is an uniform uh, watching glass for us in operations at least so if you are thinking uh, you are building a an application that needs to be delivered continuously and there is no monitoring in, inside it so those th- that's not going to fly and again so remember it, n- not to confuse with the nuance it's not the monitoring it is in general the notion of uh, making a piece of software operationally feasible operationally flexible that has to be there and people uh, tend to not not do that you want to isolate services in the beginning later on it is way more effort same for the code same for the and same for the culture also you don't want to uh, make large groups making all sharing a single repo all stepping onto each other's commits uh, you want to make smaller groups of people and you want to give lot of independence on on those let them choose that too let them choose that technology and of course you'll have an uh, you know a peer review process i mean that that's i think the recruitment itself ensures that right you don't want to recruit people who does not really want to do this kind of stuff so these are some of the anti patterns like the fascinating over particular words and and, and those say uh, testing missing thinking that testing is 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 uh, upfront investment or thinking that uh, of thinking from an operations perspective an upfront uh, investment uh, these are anti pattern these are not premature optimization this is thing you need Cool. So before we move into our checkouts, Ranjit, if you were to give in one or two sentences, what do you think would be the most important advice to someone when they want to think about how they can improve their software delivery practice? What might that be? I think that you have to make the decision. There is no magic bullet. There are certain things. So always keep in mind continuous integration is a thing. Continuous delivery is a thing. Lot of people done has some work on this. You need to read and you need to adopt it. There is no magic bullet. There is no button. Nobody is giving you the button that will click and it will solve your problem. I would agree. So now we're going to go into our checkouts where we're going to talk about 
something cool, something we would like our, our listeners to be aware of. So we'll go to our guest first, Ranjib. What do you have for us to check out? I would like you to check out this uh, particular book called Universal Principles of Design. So Universal Principles of Design, it's a book that alphabetically uh, enlists most common designs, the design paradigms. And basically, it, it, the context is more of a UI. So you have things like colors, you have things like tones, and, uh, and all those things. But there are a lot of stuff that are common. Like uh, the first one topic talks about 80-20 rule, that probably 80% uh, of the so problem can be solved by 20% of the feature of a full-blown solution. So ensuring that 20% works fine is very important. And um, focusing the first 20% is important. You don't have to make a full-blown, uh, you know, perfect thing. There are a lot of stuff like that. Uh, it talks about symmetry. It talks about semantics. talks about visual understanding. What can be visual? What we can can visualize, what helps us uh, correlating. Uh, human minds are tuned for pattern. It also t talks about how you create patterns, how you ensure. So if there is a common concern in my build pipeline, I would like to model it as a, as a common pattern, and I want to make it up the pipeline. So if it fails, everybody should know, because that way I can ensure that a, a larger group of people is aware of it, and they can think. There are more eyes looking into those problems. So yeah, universal principles of design. That sounds awesome. I think I'm going to read that. That's half the reason we have this podcast is just to get tips from other people. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and give mine. Mine is a project on GitHub called Homesick, and this was brought to my attention today by a friend of the podcast, Fletcher Nichols. I was trying to figure out what the ramifications would be of keeping my home directories on my iMac and my MacBook in complete sync, and I posed that question on Twitter and was concerned about file stepping on each other, et cetera. And then uh, Fletcher pointed out this tool called Homesick, which is available on github.com slash technicalpickles slash homesick. And it's a, a small Ruby gem that basically lets you define how you want to sync your dot files, which is what solved my problem. In my case, I primarily wanted to keep some of my config files in sync. So I had the same, for example, tmux experience on all my machines. And... Homesick seems to be a way to do that. Uh, I can't tell you how well it works for me because I haven't tried it yet, but I may report back on that in our next episode. And my other checkout, this one's a little silly. So this is a Ruby gem called Hodor. It was written by John Kaiser at Chef. And it pretty much takes in a string and converts it to Hodor. And then it can also take Hodor strings and convert them back to the original string. This makes no sense if you're not a fan of Game of Thrones. The usefulness of this is potentially debatable, but it's still kind of funny. So that would be the Hodor Ruby gem, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes too so that you can include that in your projects for who knows what reason. you got to enhode your projects. You do, and you got to hoderize them. It's like in Shepherizing them. If you guys, if anybody remembers that, Trevor, you're too young for that. But from Actually, all I've heard it before. Yeah, alt.swedish.chef.bork.bork.bork, I'm using that. <laughs> All right, so I guess that, that leaves me. And I, I've been packing for the past week and a half, so I've been not doing a whole lot of other things. But today I discovered a fun little site, which I hope will be fun in the future, but it's the first week of it, so who knows. It's called willyouhack.me, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a bunch of little, right now it's one hacking challenge, which isn't very hard at all. It's In fact, it's quite simple. I suspect most listeners of this show will be able to solve it in less than five minutes. Some maybe less than one. 
I hope it gets more challenging in the future, but it's really interesting, and I've wanted to tinker with hacking for a while, so it'll be interesting to see how long I can keep up. And secondly, check out fishing. That's I'm, I'm going to go fishing this weekend with my brother, and I'm really excited about it. That's fishing uh, with, a, with an F, not a PH, right? That's correct, for actual fish fish. Uh, <laughs> not passwords. <laughs> Largemouth large mouth bass, to be specific, is, is the target. I hope that he's not listening because it's supposed to be a surprise. But that's the first time that I've ever heard uh, you say that you hope someone's not listening to the podcast. So, <laughs> well, I would be surprised if he was. But <laughs> <laughs> so that's my checkouts, Matt. Yeah. So on the next Arrested DevOps, we will be talking about how to f up DevOps with DevOps thought leader Pete Cheslock and maybe Nathan Harvey if he decides to join us or not. So you can learn more about that at arresteddevops.com slash 14. We'll be doing that at 7 p.m. Central on Monday, July 7th. But if you don't remember that date, go to arresteddevops.com slash 14, and there'll be all the, the info about that. And also, don't forget, we have a newsletter. You can subscribe by going to arresteddevops.com slash banana stand. It is the best way to know about our upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. And, you know, this is the part of the show where Ron Howard steps in and critiques Matt's narration and really knocks it down a few pegs where it belongs. But other than that, we want to thank our sponsors, PagerDuty and Datadog. Thank you guys very much for supporting the show. And, Ranjeev, thank you for joining us. This was a great conversation. Uh, I hope thank it was you. super helpful to everybody. And, everyone, you can check us out on the webernets at ArrestedDevOps.com or on the Twitterverse at ArrestedDevOps. I'm Matt, at Matt Stratton. And I'm Trevor, at Trevor G. Hess. We are Arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand.